Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a liberal, spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to each other and welcoming one another here this morning. Yeah, like that. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. We light the fire of truth and ask to be clear, wise, and humble enough to admit when we don't know. We kindle the warmth of community and ask for open-heartedness and patience. We are grateful to the spirit of life and ask to learn the secret to loving and being loved. Our call to worship this morning is by Ralph Waldo Emerson, a white American Unitarian minister, lecturer, author, and a supporter and integral part of the Transcendentalist Movement in the 19th century. A person will worship something. A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping is what we are becoming. This congregation has a mission which guides us as we make decisions and move into the future together. We wrote it and we say it together every Sunday, and it's on our wall. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. After we say our mission, we now have a moment for beloved community where we get to take a look at the culture that we're swimming in because many of us, especially those who identify as white, have the privilege of really not noticing uh, what the water is like that we're swimming in. So I want to tell you about this thing I heard on TV. A guy was saying, okay, it was Trump, saying that, um, (laughs) he said, I saw the voting lines and there were a lot of people in there who didn't even look like they should be voting. It doesn't take much imagination to picture the folks he was talking about. And I think when many people among us picture Like, I'm just going to ask you, picture an American. The image that comes to my mind is, my mind, tall, blonde, blue-eyed. Sorry, that's how I was raised. And I'm trying to get rid of it. And so I try to picture an American, like every day in a different way, an American in a hijab, an American who's differently abled, an American who's... uh, differently limbed, an American who is um, just different from me. Uh, And we're all, we all look like people who should be voting. Am I right? Thank you.
Now is the time in our service when we enter into the silence together for prayer and meditation to speak or listen to God as we understand God or to listen to our inner wisdom or just to breathe in and out. It is in this space that we can cry from our heart or be grateful or seek clarity and feel ourselves held in the arms of compassion. Let us enter into the wise silence together, understanding that in this congregation, the noises of small children and the regular noises of life count as part of the silence.
going to talk a little more Unitarian history today. Figuring out why in the DNA of our denomination is a certain reserved shyness. I heard somebody um, say that they'd been in a barbershop quartet with another Unitarian for 20 years and neither one of them knew the other one was Unitarian. (laughs) That's how we are. And this is why, I think. So it's 1805, the opening scene in the coming out story of Unitarianism. The halls of Harvard University are where we are looking. Now, I love reading church history, and to me, it's like reading Vanity Fair magazine. <laughs> so we need a Dominic Dunn or an Emily Jane Fox to give us all the juicy details of the drama and the, the tension and the, the hatred and the self-righteousness. Uh, anyway, uh, so in 1803, the man who had been Hollis chair of divinity at Harvard died. And the chair of divinity was the one that trained all the ministers in the area, just trained them all. And they were congregationalists, but he was a Calvinist, a moderate Calvinist. And a lot of the ministers had gone to Germany for graduate study and England for graduate study, and they had come back with non-Calvinist ideas, and uh, they were liberals. They didn't believe the Calvinist thing, and I'm going to tell you what the Calvinist thing was. The mnemonic of uh, Calvinism is tulip, and you know you can look on the internet and find cute little tulip things. It's not a cute little doctrine. It was the one I was raised with. Well, let me explain it to you. T is for the total depravity of human nature. (laughs) To me, this is a moderately cheerful doctrine because (laughs) it says that, you know, we are wired in a bent way. We are broken and we cannot choose the right. We are but miserable wretches and... Um, the reason that communion comes to the congregation in a Calvinist congregation, you don't walk up to get communion. The communion comes to you in little cups. Um, is because we cannot exercise any agency in going toward God. God has to come to us because uh, miserable wretch. So um, T is the total depravity of human nature. And so it's cheerful because uh, you can feel pretty good about yourself if you're totally depraved and bent. Uh, You're doing pretty well if you haven't robbed a 7-Eleven lately or mugged anybody. So it it gives a certain self-satisfaction. U is for the unconditional election of the saints. This is what we know as predestination. Okay, here's the doctrine. St. Augustine of Hippo, an African bishop, came up with this first, and the church councils called it anathema, which is Greek for really wrong and yucky. Um, but John Calvin revived it, and, um, and it means that some people, God for his own glory, somehow, don't ask it to make sense, uh, chose some people from the beginning of time to be saved, and other people, corollary, not to be saved. 
So the election of the saints is that you are predestined to be saved from the moment of your birth, yea, even before that, from the beginning of time, you're predestined to be saved. How do you know whether you're one of the elect or not? Uh, Because if you're saved, you're one of the elect. Duh. And uh, if you're not saved, it's because God didn't really want you. Yeah. I is for the irresistible grace of God, meaning if God really wants you, God's really going to get you. He's going to get you, get you, get you. And if he doesn't get you, it's because he didn't want you. So the irresistible grace of God means if you are saved, it means God elected you from before the foundations of time. Um, P is for the perseverance of the saints, meaning once you're saved, you're always saved. Don't worry about it. Even if you make a mistake, you're saved. So in New England, Calvinism was pretty much the, oh, L, thank you, Jim, L, limited atonement. That means this is all logical corollaries once you make the first big mistake. There's, this is a way of going wrong with logic, So, um, of which there are many. So L means limited atonement, i.e. Jesus died on the cross, not for you who weren't elect from the beginning of time, but for you who were. Okay? That's limited atonement. Now, the Baptists didn't believe this. The Quakers didn't believe this. But the Baptists were in Rhode Island. And the Quakers were in Pennsylvania. And the Calvinists were in New England. You can see it in the paintings of the time. Their faces look like this. (laughs) We read about it. Some beliefs are like walled gardens. Encouraging exclusion. We sang about it. Some make the love of God so narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify God's strictness with a zeal God will not own. This is talking about this division. So the liberal ministers who were coming back from England and Germany, all trained up in non-Calvinist things, they were in the mix now. And the, the beliefs in New England congregational churches Ranged now from Calvinist to liberal. The liberals didn't really talk too much about their beliefs because they were secretly called Unitarians by people who despised their beliefs. They said they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No, they believed that Jesus was a great teacher and that humanity is saved and awakened by Jesus' teachings, not by his death. But they didn't talk about it too much. They just kind of in their congregations talked around the doctrines they didn't believe in. They taught that God was loving and good and that any doctrine that meant God wasn't loving, even in a way that we could understand loving, had to be wrong. There was this uh, custom in New England where the ministers would uh, exchange pulpits. So that about half the time you were in somebody else's pulpit preaching, and they were in yours. And so the ministers, you know, the the people got to hear different voices and different opinions. And um, the ministers got to bring, you know, just not write as many sermons. And they all kind of got along, and at ministers' gatherings, they just didn't really talk about doctrine too much. They just, you know, they drank coffee and uh, 
chatted each other up about family and the weather. Enter the catalyst or the bad guy, depending on your perspective, Jedediah Morse. Yeah, look at the faith on him. (laughs) Jedediah Morse moved to Massachusetts and he was appalled at how people just mixed and mingled with folks who didn't share their beliefs. They're too nice. They're not going after the purity of doctrine. They're allowing liberals to be in their pulpits when they are Calvinists. That's terrible. And he began making lists of the ministers who were liberal and the ministers who were Calvinist. Lists. And he made ministers say which one they were. So suddenly the liberals were like, well, I'm liberal. Sorry. Let's go back to Harvard. So the Hollis Chair of Divinity, the guy who trains all the ministers, had been a moderate Calvinist. It was said of him that purity of doctrine and grace of spirit and charity married smoothly in one person. Lovely. The president of Harvard, also a moderate Calvinist, um, knew that the most obvious person for the job was a guy, a liberal minister in Boston named Henry Ware. Henry Ware should be the one training all the ministers. But I don't know how much you know about presidents of universities. But they are in a tough position politically. They have to make their donors happy. And they kind of have to make their faculty happy. And it's good if they can make their students happy, but students are, you know, let's face it, way down on the totem pole. But the president here did not want any controversy. And so he didn't want to replace a moderate Calvinist with a liberal. So he did... Uh, he did this thing, which um, some people do, and just didn't bring it up, the replacement of the Hollis chair. Didn't bring it up for two years until the Boston newspaper started agitating and saying, why is he not replacing the Hollis chair? We think there's something nefarious going on. We think he's using that Hollis money for other stuff around the university. So he knew Things had come to a head. Something had to be done. So he died. (laughs) A professor named Eliphalet Pearson was... Uh, made acting president, and he really badly wanted the job. In the writing of people who knew him at the time, he was characterized as ultra-liberal before the president's death and a staunch Calvinist after it. (laughs) He was disliked by the students as a bully, and it was said that he tended to alienate even those who agreed with him. Eliphalet Pearson and five other 
men made up the corporation that governed the university. There was one other staunch Calvinist, two liberals, and two moderates. One of the moderates was Judge Oliver Wendell, who was a liberal whose daughter was married to the conservative Calvinist Abel Holmes. She was the mother of Oliver, Oliver Wendell Holmes. So the selection process began with everybody putting in two names. The Calvinists put in two Calvinist names, the liberals put in two liberal names, and the moderates put in one Calvinist and one liberal name. And within a few weeks, the choices was, uh, were narrowed down to two. Jesse Appleton or Henry Ware. This is Jesse Appleton. He was a moderate Calvinist. The meetings were sour, the meetings of the, of the corporation, because there was a personality clash between Eliphalet Pearson and Dr. John Elliott, who was a liberal minister. It was said that Pearson's personal attacks on Elliott were schoolboyish and mean. Finally, Judge Wendell proposed a compromise. They would make one of the guys the president and the other of the guys the professor. Well, they didn't think Henry Ware could be president. He just wasn't uh, a good fundraiser. Um, then, okay, Appleton will be president. But no, John Elliott didn't like Appleton because he, he had an unpleasant voice. And it wasn't good that he was going to be leading worship for Harvard with a voice like this. I don't know what his voice sounded like, but it was like probably like one of Homer Simpson's sisters. <laughs> they kept trying to vote on the compromise, but Pearson, who wanted the job for himself, voted no on all the compromises. And eventually Henry Ware was elected to be the professor that trained all the ministers, a liberal now, turning point in New England. A liberal now was training all the ministers. He won by one vote. So the appointment then had to be okayed by the Board of Overseers of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, made up of ministers and politicians. The Calvinists were distressed that they didn't think the professor was going to be training all the ministers, was orthodox enough. And Jedediah Morse came back in and wrote that this was a misuse of Hollis funds because Hollis wanted a man who was of solid learning in divinity and of sound and orthodox principles. Orthodox, said Morse. See, orthodox. You can't call Henry Ware orthodox. But gradually, the overseers and the politicians, then the ministers, they came to interpret that Henry Ware was solidly learned and orthodox enough Within weeks, Morse had published a pamphlet talking about how sneaky the liberals were than reinterpreting the words of, of the Hollis Grant and sneaking Henry Ware in there who's going to make all the ministers in New England now liberal and you can't pulpit exchange with a liberal and now they're all going to be liberal and what are the Calvinists going to do? They're the most persecuted, victimized people in the world with these bad liberals. Anyway, uh, he left and uh, took a job to be head of the Phillips Academy. And then Pearson and Jedediah Morse founded the Andover Newton Theological Seminary. 
which is now closed. So the ministers started splitting and dividing into Trinitarian Orthodox ministers calling the other ones Unitarians, while the other one was like, we're not, we're really not, we're not, we're... 1819, one of our forebears, William Ellery Channing, said, okay, we are. We are Unitarians. You've outed us, and now we're going to be out and proud as Unitarians. And in 1819, he preached what we call the Baltimore Sermon, where he said... The whole tulip doctrine is wrong and mean, and what kind of God is that? I'm paraphrasing. But it did last for an hour and a half. (laughs) And why would a supposedly loving God choose some of his children for damnation and others for salvation? That's not loving. And if any of us were to burn one of our children because they made a mistake, we would be thrown in jail. And why do we believe in a God who's less of a good parent than we are? In 1819, if you take all the pulpits in Texas, the number of pulpits in which you could say that even in 2019 are small. Why should we think we are better parents than we think God is? So our task as Unitarians from the beginning has been to define ourselves over against rigid religiosity over against people who believe in a God who would do terrible things. Our choice is to believe in the goodness of humanity, not original sin, but that babies are born good. Now that is a problem to me because babies are sociopaths. They're like honey badger, so they don't care. They want to eat. They want to eat now. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Too bad. But anyway, babies are born good, and people are basically good. And God is good and loving. We believe in at most one God, and that that God is love. The universalist part of our name, so Unitarian is as opposed to Trinitarian. So we are Unitarian and don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Believe Jesus is a great teacher who awakens us and saves us by the teachings, not by the death. And universalist means universal salvation. God is too good to send anybody to hell. That's not loving. And so, my friends... We need to be willing to tell this good news. We are very shy, but there are lots of people who are haunted by hell. And there are lots of people who are haunted by the idea that you should suffer abuse from your family like Jesus suffered on the cross from his dad. And that the way of showing your holiness and the way of showing your, your submission is to suffer Calmly and with resignation. Number one, Jesus didn't suffer like that. I'm going to talk more about that next Sunday. How this whole doctrine of God's needing blood in order to forgive people makes the violence in our society undergirded with theology. 
So all of this to me is good news, and I encourage you all to become preachers of the good news. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please sing with me if you care to. Get your Appalachian on. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thy I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.